Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the two authors of Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. The book is published by Beacon Press uh, this year and, and newly available. The authors are Francis. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and Today, I'll be talking to the two authors of Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. The book is published by Beacon Press uh, this year and, and newly available. The authors are Francis Moore LaPay and Adam Eichen. Both of you, how are you doing today? Great. Wonderful. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, such a pleasure. Francis, maybe I can start with you and, and maybe you can just give us a, a little brief introduction to who you are and then and then Adam will allow you to do the same. So Francis, t- tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, when I was 26 years old, I decided that I had to understand why people are hungry in the world. And I wrote my first book, Diet for a Small Planet. And it shaped the rest of my life. And by the 1980s, I was saying, Hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food. There's plenty of that. Hunger is caused by a scarcity of democracy. And I've been swimming in this river uh, that has two streams, and that is food as an entry point to understand what is missing in our societies with such suffering and then the answer being genuine democracy. So I've written books on democracy, including a book called Democracy's Edge, another called Getting a Grip. I've also written a lot in the in the world of food and hunger. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and those connections from sort of the democratic movement to these other issues is is one that maybe we all assume, but we don't usually foreground. And I think it's something that clearly shows up in the book. Now, Adam, how about yourself? Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Right. So I um, originally came into democracy policy through Democracy Matters, which is a student organizing group uh, with campus or with chapters on campuses across the United States. And uh, I was in college at the time, obviously, and had a lot of different interests. But it really was in the moment when I learned uh, that we could make no progress on any of the policies I cared about before we uh, fix our democracy. Uh, then that's how basically that we, we need to fix our democracy first before we can make any progress and everything clicked for me. Um, and so since then I've been studying and writing about democracy, uh, as my professional life. And, uh, this book book is the fruition of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a nice proud moment when the book finally comes out and you get the hard copy of what you've been working on and less, less hard copy versions, uh, for I'm sure a long time. Um, Francis, let me start with a question for you, which is sort of a, a little bit of a kind of an overview type question, which is, you know, in reading the book and, and despite our somewhat distressing times, what I gather is that you two are democratic optimists in a significant way. Um, why so optimistic when there seems to be so many reasons for pessimism? Uh, or, or maybe you don't view yourself as, as, an, as an optimist. 
but but talk about that kind of larger context of how you approach the book and 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 dem, uh, democratic institutions as as a hopeful or or not hopeful. Well, I'll I'll start there because I uh, tend to avoid actually the word optimism. I like to say that I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I am a possibilist, meaning that I think it is possible. I think human beings have it in us to make this turn to democracy. And we say in the beginning of our book is that it's not the magnitude of the challenge that crushes the human spirit. It's feeling useless that does us in. And so we, we make the case, and I think history shows us that it's true that when people believe something is absolutely essential – as we do believe democracy is, when they can believe that it is at least possible, maybe not probable, but possible, and that there is a place for them in making that change, then we can be unstoppable. So that's our our perspective is really of possibility, not op- optimism in any simple sense. Yeah, and that this is also deeply human. This is not just institutional, um, that much of what you uh, write about particularly in the early parts of the book is is very much just what you said about the the um, you know what, what we have as human beings the possibilities that that exist. Now, um, Adam, this is this is a a, a book uh, about politics, but you rely on a lot of political science scholarship, uh, which you note in the book. I wonder if you could talk about some of the the inspiration, some of the the books that um, have crossed your desk uh, that inform this book. You mentioned a number of them. Uh, in the uh, introductory parts of the book. So what inspired this? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, this book is indebted to so many people and so many works of scholarship that, frankly, without which um, in, in no way, shape, or form would Daring Democracy have been possible. Um, and we're fortunate that they, that they all came out really recently. I mean, this a lot of these works were not around when I was originally organizing around money and politics and democracy uh, in college. And so we were really reaching a shift in terms of scholarship around about democracy issues and the real assault on our democratic institutions. Um, and, and among which, I mean, really are some core books. Jane Mayer's Dark Money, which was one of the New York Times 2016's best book of the year. Um, and the others include Zachary Roth, who I know you interviewed before, uh, his book, The Great Suppression. And, and I have to kind of say that uh, it was actually through your podcast that I found out about his book. And he was such a help uh, during the entire book writing process. And, you know, his book, The Great Suppression, really served as a, you know, one of the inspirations for chapters three and four of our book, which really chronicled the sustained and concerted assault on, on our democracy. Um, and, and there are many other works as well from Ari Berman's Give Us the Ballot, which really kind of jolted both uh, Francis and my understanding of, of the real assault on voting rights. Um, and the list goes on. And, and in, in the acknowledgment sections of the book, we really – we give – ample space to thanking these wonderful scholars that have put in the legwork that made our book possible. Now, Francis, you, you uh, anchor this book in, in history and, and uh, seek out the uh, roots of the problems that you see related to uh, anti-democratic uh, tendencies in the United States. Uh, would you place this into history and to, to the, maybe the starting point or where you see some of the problems that we face now uh, their starting points. Where, where, how far back do you go? Well, I think there's a long, um, a long intellectual tradition with many good elements in it uh, that gotten very reductive and uh, dogmatic, and that has been the problem. And that tradition, that liberal tradition, um, some say goes back in part to Leviathan and 
um, Thomas Hobbes' view of human nature, uh, this notion that uh, man is to man is a wolf, you know, homo homini lupus. So there is, we identify a root within the classic liberal tradition that has a pretty dim view of human nature. And uh, we take that through to the more recent uh, reductive view that really um, human beings can only be counted on to be self-interested and materialistic and competitive. And therefore, we have to turn to something that has been mystified, and that is the marketplace. Ronald Reagan referred to it as the magic of the marketplace. And, of course, if something is magic, you do not want to look behind the curtain. And so we don't really come to appreciate how much every market needs rules and how our rules have been manipulated, have been rigged. Um, so that is the that is the trajectory that we outline, uh, how we've gotten to this point of people believing that we have to reduce more and more of our interactions to market market commodity exchange, if you will, and how then that plays out in what we've come to call a brutal form of capitalism, brutal capitalism. In other words, the market has been ripped out of democratic norms and community traditions and this notion that it just works on its own to sort out winners and losers has really been a very, very negative thing for our society. You know, so one of the things that we kind of the key pivotal moment in terms of the real uh, rooting of this ideology in a certain way is 1971 when Lewis Powell writes a memo uh, to the Chamber of Commerce. And Powell, in two months after he writes his memo, will become a Supreme Court justice. And in this memo, he outlines the, the strategy for the way to uh, make sure that the business perspective in society is heard. Um, and it, it really f- kind of creates the foundation for what we call in the book the anti-democracy movement, um, which uses all of the strategies and kind of all of the aspects – through, through all the aspects of society, whether media, education, public policy, uh, public opinion, uh, to get its views across. And the, so that we use the Powell Memo as the real anchor moment for this shift in, in society where government becomes – the enemy, government becomes inefficient, that, that the democratic norms no longer hold. And so we really chronicle uh, the, from that moment the massive shift in our democracy um, and the massive increase of privatization that has occurred in kind of all aspects of both the economy and our institutions. Now, Francis, in, in Chapter 4, which, which I think Adam is, is referencing, you, you walk through a number of different strategies related to this anti-democracy uh, movement. How coordinated do you see these strategies and, and this movement? Um, this, these strategies are, are varied mm-hmm. and they play on different institutions and in, at different time periods. Um, but there's a suggestion that there is some coordination. So mm-hmm. how coordinated do you see the, the anti-democratic movement? Well, I think the mindset that Adam has spoken to is, is really central. And uh, there is coordination. One of the team of scholars that we relied on is the Harvard University Theta Scotchpole and her colleague at Columbia, Alexander Ahertel Fernandez. And they track very carefully and very uh, much, you know, real, you really feel like they've gotten their, their research done well to 
see the construction of a coordinated effort led by the Koch brothers that they've understood. Of course, Lewis Powell pointed out that uh, this defense of the free enterprise system, the upgrade of the role of corporations in our society, it couldn't be done without a coordinated effort with a lot of money behind it. And I think the Kochs took that to heart, uh, maybe literally or not, but certainly that's what they've done. And they have biannual meetings in which they l- um, bring in people who are willing to pay, I believe it is $100,000 a head to attend, and they try to coordinate and to build off each other. And so what has happened is that the most dramatic thing to me in that chapter is the way the Koch brothers have created a really an alternative a network, a political network that in many ways on the surface looks like a grassroots movement, but it is, isn't. And it, it in many ways is greater than the Republican Party in its scope and impact. So it's not, it's the opposite of democratic in the sense that it's not transparent, it's not accountable in any way, at least the the legitimate political parties, they have to put out what they stand for, and we can think that we're voting for or against them. But something like this is uh, another animal, if you will, and to me, very threatening to democracy. And and moreover, just to kind of add on to that, I mean, the, the assaults on you know, the families, you know, one of the kind of key things we take away from folks like Jane Mayer, um, you know, is that, is that it is kind of just a handful of families that fund most of these efforts, whether it's funding a campaign, funding a political party, funding um, a political action committee, funding uh, an institute, or even funding like, legislative efforts, lobbying, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's the same group that are doing, you know, that that, that coordinate the funding, and 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 also ultimately, it's the same players that keep coming up. What, uh, you know, when it comes to you know who's advocating for restricting of voting, um, you know, through voter ID laws, or who's fighting against uh, money and politics regulation, um, or who who is behind, you know, we tell the story based on uh, David Daly's book. Um, about uh, the the effort called Red Map to uh, win spend a lot of money to win back state legislature races and then gerrymander as many states as possible to assure majority in Cong- majority in Congress for as long as possible and as the money is is all coming from similar sources and, and the key players keep popping up so so whether or not there's direct coordination or kind of coordination by just socialization that it's the same people showing up that they know each other et cetera et cetera and have the same beliefs I mean. You know, it certainly seems like it's the former, but, um, you know, it's, it's the same folks that are funding all of these efforts from every aspect of democracy, from media to policy to uh, funding of, of, of certain educational programs. Now, if this is the problem and, and the scale of the problem that you, you document in the book is, is quite significant, um, you also, as we've talked about, uh, describe yourself as possibilists. Um, what's the solution? Um, Adam, you, you talk about in the books about some of your background with uh, the Democracy Spring March uh, this past year. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the what you describe as the nonpartisan democracy movement. Uh, what are its component parts and are, how are they responsive to the problem that, that you and Francis just mentioned? 
Well, I think Democracy Spring is a, a great way to jump into the conversation about the democracy movement, as we call it. And we call it the democracy movement with a capital D, capital M, because we think that it's it's a really important moment and it's a really important movement that deserves the capitalization. Um, and uh, that So Democracy Spring was basically a coalition of over 100 different organizations spanning the gamut of, of environmental, labor, good government groups. Um, and it happened in April 2016. And it was uh, nine day march from Philadelphia to D.C., 140 miles, and then about seven days of civil disobedience in the Capitol. And it was nonpartisan and basically was fighting for reasonable money in politics uh, reform through public financing of elections and ensuring the right to vote. Um, and it was in that moment where not only did Frankie and, or Francis and I become friends, um, because we walked that entire distance and, and the, really the, this book comes out of that moment um, because all we have to do is talk. I mean that's the beautiful part about a march is that all you have to do is – all you can do is talk about what you believe and why you're there. And so this book really came out of that moment in 2016 uh, on the Democracy Spring March. Um, but it was in that moment that we realized something really big was happening and we describe it as a movement of movements because ultimately what was happening is, is, is twofold. And the first is that you have groups that specialize in specific, specific, specific aspects of democracy, whether it be money in politics or voting rights, expanding their mission to include all aspects of democracy. So what good is the right to uh, – or what, what, what good is money in politics reform if you don't have the right to vote and vice versa? So you see the broadening of scopes of democracy groups. And the second thing that was happening is kind of what I was alluding to earlier is that all of a sudden you have labor and environmental groups coming together um, and realizing that they can't make any progress on their issues if we don't first fix democracy. And I think, Frankie, do you want to talk about uh, Democracy Initiative? Yes. And I also want to say that we were so excited um, to learn about this, that, in fact, people were having that moment that Josh Silver, head of Represent Us, uh, reminded us when he said – uh, Francis and Adam, you can love two children at once, you know. And he smiled when he said that. And what he was getting at is that you don't have to give up your issue passion in order to join in on the democracy movement and commit yourself to devoting some resources to these underlying questions of who has a voice in this society, money and politics, voting rights, those questions. And so in 2013, a group of organizations, huge organizations that represented labor and in the environment and um, and also democracy reform came together to create the Democracy Initiative that now includes about 40 organizations representing 30 million Americans. And uh, we're delighted to say that we're working with them. One of the things I wanted your listeners to know about is something we're calling the Field Guide to the Democracy Movement. And we've created that, and now it's going to be relaunched uh, an even more accessible way. Uh, it's just Field Guide to the Democracy Movement. But the point is that we find it thrilling that people are understanding that all these issues can't really get to the point of fruition without system reform. Now, now, there's lots of different pieces in here that all have accumulated into this book. Um, the book is not yet out. I wonder, Adam, if you could just talk a little bit about uh, the release of the book, uh, when the book is officially going to be out and available, 
and if there are any other things that you're going to be doing to talk about the book um, that uh, that people might uh, look to in the next couple of weeks. Right. So so it's coming out on September 26th. Um, so I don't know when this is going to go live, but uh, September 26th of September, or uh, September 26th. Uh, and basically we'll be going on tour starting, uh, on October 2nd and we're going to be going around the country, uh, West coast first and then circling back, uh, to the East coast. And yeah. And basically, you know, we will be continuing to try and raise awareness that, you know, one, there's a movement out there and two, that there's a place for every American in it. Um, I don't know if you want to say something, Frankie. And I think one of the core messages that we love most in the book is shifting this frame that somehow democracy is a duty, a dull duty. It's the dull, you know, spinach you eat to get your dessert of personal freedom, but it's nothing that is that exciting. And we say no. We have discovered in our own lives that it is absolutely thrilling. And we describe the three internal shifts that happen that add up to us to this thrill of democracy. And that is, as Adam and I walked all that distance from Philly to D.C., uh, we found ourselves bonding with strangers who we would never have met otherwise. So there was that sense of connection that Americans are hungry for. And we also felt that we were doing what we thought we couldn't do. And it was building our what we call civil courage and convincing us that we could even do more things we didn't think we could do. And finally, we had that moment as we approached the Capitol and we were chanting, whose democracy? Our democracy and saw the Capitol Dome. We, we internalized that sense that, yes, it is ours. It is not <laughs> owned by the people in those those impressive buildings, that the American people are the owners of their democracy. We are the grown-ups in the room with solutions. And it was all put together, and being in such a great group of people really gave us a sense of possibility that we want to share in this book. Yeah, it's wonderful. Again, the title is Daring Democracy, Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America We Want. Uh, The book is published by uh, Beacon Press. Authors who you've been hearing from, Francis Moore LaPay and Adam Eichen. Thank you both for your time today. Our great pleasure, Heath. Of course. Thank you so much for having us.